Let's read it. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ruth. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he, Boaz, took ten more of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. There is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Would you pray with me one last time? Lord, help us now as we look at your word to understand it, to receive it, to receive its correction, to receive its instruction, and most of all, Lord, to receive its wonderful grace. We thank you that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever wonder if God is going to come through for you in the end? If he's going to be faithful? If he was trustworthy to depend on? 
if he's really going to provide you everything that you really need? Have you ever wondered if the things that you sought from the Lord maybe are too big for him? Maybe they're unimportant to him. Have you ever wondered if God actually hears what you have to say on a normal Sunday afternoon or a Tuesday drive home from work? Or maybe in the middle of a sleepless night when all you can do is cry out to him, help. Have you wondered if the Lord will redeem you? Have you wondered if he listens, if he cares, if he knows? Ruth's ending shows us a God who is faithful to bring full redemption. Not simply to give temporary relief to minor needs, but to sweep us up in the fulfillment of our story being found in the purpose of his plan and not merely our own. Have you ever wondered what your part is to play have you ever wondered if you could ever even get over your own troubles, trials, things outside of your control and embrace that plan that God has for you? Have you wondered if maybe the trials that he allows in your life, maybe they've stalled me from being a part of God's plan and he doesn't want me in it? The ending of Ruth shows us that God indeed wants us to be a part of his story. He wants to use the simple, the mundane, the ordinary for his extraordinary purposes and that he wants us to know that he is faithful in redemption. So our title this morning is Redemption in Full. Redemption in Full. And I'll show you the outline here if you'd like to follow along. We'll break it down into three sections based on three redeemers. Spoiler alert, there's a fourth redeemer. His name rhymes with Jesus. The first one we'll see is the humble redeemer in verses 1 through 12. Next, we see the precious redeemer in verses 13 through 17. In verses 18 through 22, the last one, the victorious redeemer. And if you want to know, so that you don't have to wonder who these three folks are, we're talking about Boaz, Obed, and David. But really, who are we talking about? Who do we get together every Sunday to talk about? Jesus, the true Redeemer. But we see the true Redeemer in some ordinary Redeemers today. What God wants us to know is that he is indeed faithful to bring full redemption to us in Christ. But we didn't read Jesus' name in here. Shouldn't there at least be a footnote after the genealogy that says, and by the way, this is why this story is important to understanding who Jesus is. Wouldn't it be helpful if we had some help with that? Well, the truth is, is that when we look at the whole message of God's plan for redemptive history and, and seeing that that is paramount to us in Christ and what he's done, we see that all the rest of Scripture as, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, the rest of Scripture whispers his name. And in Ruth chapter 4, there are some loud whispers of the name of Jesus Christ. This series has been titled New Beginnings because that's where we started, right? Naomi desperately needed a new beginning. And so our look at chapter 1 was a look at the idea of starting over even when everything seemed to already be over. 
Probably my longest sermon title yet. But Naomi, who lived with her husband Elimelech and her two sons in Bethlehem, were living in a place called House of Bread during a time of famine, when there was nothing to eat. And so Elimelech makes a decision. We're leaving. We are, but this is the land that God has promised us. Shouldn't we stay? But there's no food. I have to take care of my family. God wants me to take care of my family. I have to do something about it. We're leaving. We're going somewhere else. Okay, fine. Uh, We'll go somewhere. Where are we going? Moab looks pretty nice. Moab? The enemy of God's people? The ones who hired a prophet to curse Israel years before? The ones who enslaved us in this period, this, this little epoch of history, and it happens in the book of Judges, and Moab was a great enemy of Israel. Why are we going to Moab? Moab has food. Bethlehem doesn't. I need to feed my family. Let's go. So they go, and what happens? Elimelech dies. Terrible tragedy. Too young to die. Shouldn't have died. We don't know why he died. But then on top of that, Malon and Chilion, who had been married for 10 years in the land of Moab, also die. We never expressed this during the sermon. There didn't, the sermon series, there didn't seem to be quite the right time, but um, Malon and Chilion's names, I'll have them mixed up because they're not actually my notes, but their names mean sickly and weak. So we can kind of guess their death was probably not a noble one necessarily. Names are significant in the Bible, not just because that's how we remember them, but it's also how we describe them. Naomi, Naomi's name means pleasant, and she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. She returns to that by the end of chapter 3. She would be embracing her name pleasant because she sees what the Lord is doing for her. However, in chapter 4, we've left Naomi and Ruth waiting for a redeemer. We had them start over their new beginning. They came back to Bethlehem. Naomi's two daughters-in-law wanted to stay with her. She convinces Orpah to go back to Moab, but Ruth would not let go of Naomi, so she remained with her. She became, as we just read in the end of chapter 4, more to her than seven sons. With every reason that she should have gone back home, she chose not to. Instead, she decided to come under the wings of God's grace and to work out what she needed to do to care for her friend. Chapter 2 is a beautiful chapter. And then chapter 3 last week, we talked about finding rest. That the hope of a new beginning was driven by a pursuit of of rest. Naomi says, should I not find rest for you, my daughter? Shouldn't I find you a home? Shouldn't I find you security? You've come to be my friend in a time where I had no one. What could I do for you? Listen to what the law of God calls his people to do. If a man dies and hasn't given his wife a son, that man's closest relative is to come in and marry that woman and provide an heir for the name of the man who died and for the care of the mother who, in this time, feminism not being a thing whatsoever, would have had no hope at all for providing for herself. God's kindness in his word required that these sacrifices of redemption be made. And so Naomi makes a plan. Boaz is a near relative. Now, Naomi probably knows what Boaz knows, And Boaz tells it to Ruth in chapter 3, I want to find you rest. 
and I will, it might not be me. There's a closer redeemer. Can you imagine Boaz, who at this point has expressed such awe at who Ruth is? And when Ruth comes and says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer, basically she's saying, propose to me and marry me. You know Boaz and his heart is going, yes, that sounds great. You are a worthy woman. I want to marry you. Oh, but the law of the Lord says it should be the nearest relative to redeem. And there is one nearer than I. But listen, Ruth, I'm not going to leave you in that. I'm going to go to him as fast as I can. I, and, and Naomi says it about him, that he would not sleep until he settles the matter. And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter 4 today. Ruth and Naomi, they can't do anything. They're resting while they wait for rest. They're waiting to see what will happen when Boaz finds this guy. Do you notice he doesn't have a name? He calls him friend. It's a very friendly way of describing a guy. Grammatically, in the Hebrew, this guy has no name. There is, there is no title of friend. There's no title of comrade. There's no, there, there's no good word in place of that because what the author is doing by removing the name of this guy is he's saying, this guy isn't worth having his name remembered. So we're going to call him Dude. I was listening to a sermon recently where the pastor just kind of said Dude, and I was like, man, I wish, because Dude is part of my vocabulary Monday through Saturday. But I come up to the pul pulpit, and I'm like, I don't think Dude's coming out right now. That doesn't seem right. And then I read this, and I thought, Dude is the exact right word for describing this guy. He's just a Dude. Maybe more like a dud. I mean, if you see what he does here, he doesn't care anything for Naomi or for Ruth. But who does? Our humble redeemer. Our humble redeemer who is kind. So Boaz goes to the central hub of the city, the town gates. That's where you'd have any kind of financial transactions, declarations, meetings. It was a town hall. It was a coffee shop. It was a living bulletin board. That was the gate to the city. So Boaz, in verse 2, calls together ten elders of the town to bear witness to what he kind of foresees is going to happen. And you'll see that in the way he communicates with dude here. He calls the ten elders of the town together to bear witness. And then he says, it says in verse 1, and this will be familiar to us hopefully if you remember the story. In verse 1 it says, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz spoke came by. This word behold probably doesn't serve us too well as what we saw when Ruth goes to work in the field. Because the author there says, it happened that she went to whose field? Boaz's field. She happened to be there. Listen, when the Bible says something happened, that she happened to do so, the Bible doesn't talk about coincidences. The Bible is the declaration of God's sovereign plan. And this word behold here is just as good as saying it happened that when he went to the city gates to assemble the elders, dude walked by right away. Like he knew he was coming, but there's also the sovereign moving of God's hand in this story to bring about his ultimate purpose. He happened to pass by, just as Ruth happened upon Boaz's field. And even though God is seldom mentioned in the book of Ruth by name, we see his hand. And so I quote Charles Spurgeon once again. When we cannot see his hand, we can still trust his heart. 
And we can see his hand, but do you think Ruth and Naomi saw his hand at all times? No. But the beginning of this story is the trusting the heart of God, that he is our redeemer and that he will redeem us in full, and that no matter what the world throws at us, or what we face, or what changes happen, or your worst fears for 2021, if they've come to pass even already, God has not left you without a redeemer, church. Christ is our redeemer. The Lord has orchestrated the seemingly insignificant circumstance of life. It seems to only affect three people. Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, well, and the dude, but of course he's not even going to be a part of this pretty soon. He says in verses 3 to 4, Naomi is selling the land. It's all yours, man. This is your opportunity to redeem the land and preserve it for Elimelech's sake, to preserve his name. Because remember, names are important in the Bible, right? And without a redeemer, the name of Elimelech, the name of Malon and Chilion, it's going to be gone without a lineage to follow after him. This was an incredibly important thing in, in the culture, not only of Israel, but of the whole world at the time. This was essentially eternal life in their minds. How do we live on forever? How do we make what we do on this earth count? It's through our children and their children and their children and their children. That's why this book ends with a genealogy to emphasize that point. But what's going to be turned on its head a little bit here, and we'll see this with the dude, is that we are not given this opportunity for memorial for our own story's sake, but that our own story gets weaved into the larger tapestry of God's greater story. And so I'll give you this illustration again. I've probably said it before, but hey, I don't have a whole lot of illustrations, so I'm keeping the good ones. If you think of a beautiful tapestry that's been weaved together, and you can see in your minds the front of it, you know, hanging in an art museum, hanging in your home, whatever it might be, and you see the intricate designs and all the colors and all the intention. What would happen if you turned that tapestry backwards? Would you see the same image? No. Would you see the mirror image of it? No. What would you see? Chaos. You would see strings going left and right and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it doesn't look anything like the finished product on the other side. And so it is with the Lord's plan and how he integrates our lives and our stories into his grander scheme, his sovereign rule, his perfect providential care for the world. You live in the tangled up yarn, but he sees the masterpiece on the other side. That's what's going on with Ruth and Naomi right here. Though everything seems to be a simple family matter, the Lord is bringing us to a fulfillment in Christ. Yes, Christ. Of course, David is our last mention here, and we'll, we'll deal with the connection to them, those two later on. So Naomi's selling the land. I'm giving you a chance to do the right thing. At this point, neither Boaz or the dude are actually responsible or required by the law to do the redeeming. Okay, there is there's no one left. The nearest relative is gone. This is this is a, a prescription of grace, but it's not a requirement. And so what we see here is Boaz's willingness to care for something that isn't even directly his responsibility. But his love for the Lord, his admiration for Ruth and Naomi, his care for his distant relative uh, Elimelech and Malon and Chilion have moved him with the kindness of God to express that to them by finding them a redeemer. This land that he speaks of is a small portion of shared land between a handful of different clans. 
Looking at it from simply buying land's perspective, it kind of makes sense. Perhaps this nearer kinsman redeemer is one who owns land nearby this, and it makes sense to him. So when the land is mentioned, dude says, yeah, I'll redeem it. Sure. Because you can't just kind of like buy and sell land in Israel. You know, land is apportioned out to the tribes and to the families. So it's not just a simple matter of the only reason anybody would sell land would be if they were in terrible poverty or if they were moving for some unwise decision. God had planned out to give this land of Israel to his people forever. And even when it's bought and sold, it's only bought and sold for a certain amount of time before it goes back to the original family. And so what dude is going to do is buy this land work it for a little while, and then on the year of Jubilee, seven years after, it will return back to Elimelech's family. But guess what? There is no Elimelech's family. There's just Ruth and Naomi. Of course, he doesn't know that at first, does he? Because Boaz's first declaration to the dude is, buy the land. And then the dude says, yes, I will buy it. He sees an opportunity, and he agrees. And verse 5 is where Boaz says, not so fast. There's a catch. Because this is not just simply an opportunity for you to advance financially. And so he's going to find out the truth. And here's what I think. I think Boaz knows this about the dude. I think he knows that the dude is not one who's going to express the kindness of God. I think Naomi knew that too. I'm sure Naomi knew that this guy was the nearer kinsman redeemer than Boaz was. But did she send Ruth to him? Who'd she send Ruth to? Boaz. Because he is a worthy man, because he expresses that the Hebrew word is hesed, the kindness, the steadfast love of God. What we would translate as grace. So he says, hey, listen, not so fast. I know that you want to buy this land, but here's the thing. When you buy the land, you also get Ruth, the Moabites. You also have to take care of Naomi. But Ruth is your real problem. You have to buy the land marry Ruth and provide offspring for Elimelech's family so that that family will go on. This is a weird thing to talk about in 2021, isn't it? I mean, this is not something you're going to do later on this week. Oh yeah, I forgot I needed to marry that girl and redeem the land. for. This is a very different world. It's a big cultural bridge for us to cross, isn't it? And that's part of reading God's word. We have to kind of dig into it a little bit more and, and think about it a little bit more and understand what's going on here. But what's going on is something set forth in the law in order to provide for people who cannot provide for themselves. God is not one who says, hey, listen, if you just don't have the right luck and if you're not born in the right escalon of society in America at the right time, sorry, you've got nothing. You're going to have to figure it out for yourself. God provides for his people. He wants to provide for his people. God is a redeemer. He is a redeeming God. And he will take opportunities like what happened with Ruth and Naomi and let it be a picture of his great grace. Why is it that we don't hear from um, other families? Why don't we hear from every other family in the Old Testament that ever existed? Well, this story is unique in that it starts with tragedy and God weaves that into his tapestry and makes it beautiful. We like happy endings. I know that maybe some of you don't like happy endings. Maybe you like to watch those movies that end terribly. Maybe you like tragedy. I like a little tragedy in movies sometimes. It seems more real. It seems more real that things don't always work out the way that we want them to. And Ruth's story isn't perfect, but it does bring us hope in the end. 
So what does the guy say? Oh, first of all, marry a Moabitess. I don't want to do that. Never. Oh, that sounds so un-Israel. I don't want to be a part of that at all. Also, marry her. Well, what's the problem here? Look back down at verse 5. He gives the instruction, If you redeem this land, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Verse 6, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Let's pause you right there, dude. Cannot or will not. If he truly could not redeem this land and Ruth and Naomi, would Boaz have even asked him? I mean, maybe, but would he have had this discussion with him about it? No, he probably would have said, hey, look, I know, I know where you are right now financially, buying land and then taking care of two more people. That sounds really hard. Uh, let me just go ahead and redeem them for you. It seems implied that the dude could have done this thing. But his words say, I cannot do it. Why? Why can't you do it? Lest I impair my own inheritance. My own inheritance, what is he talking about? What he's talking about is the fact that he wants to have his own kids to carry his own family line, and the land that he owns will go to his kids. But when he takes on this land and takes on this wife and has other kids, they're not really going to be his kids. I know, this is weird, isn't it, right? This is kind of like some really strange stuff, but, but this is the reality. This is what people needed at the time. When, when he marries Ruth, he's going to have to not only care for Ruth and Naomi, but any children that they have, the land that they have, and in the end, it's not even going to be his or his children anyway. Is this man a picture of the Hesed kindness of God? No. He cares only for himself. He is all about the money. He is an unfortunate casualty of individualistic culture. We talked about individualism this morning in Sunday school, but it's not a new, you know, postmodern thing. It's something that's been wrong all throughout history. I mean, it started all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve were tempted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because if you do that, you'll be like God. Don't you want to be like God? Do you know the depth of that lie is the fact that they already were like God? They were created in God's image. That was as far as they were allowed to go in being like God. That was acceptable. That was good. That was what God blessed. And yet, they wanted more. And they thought individualistically about it. I will be like God. Well, someone else said that before, didn't they? The serpent himself, God's great enemy, who said, I will be like God. I will take God's throne. And he failed. And so all the world that we live in is an individualistic culture. And again, if you remember from months ago when we were in the book of Judges, what was that phrase that kept being repeated? It was like an unfortunate dirge, a, a terrible chorus. In those days, everyone did what? It was right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is what dude is doing, right in his own eyes. If I do this, I will gain nothing. I will put money into buying the land. I will have to create another family for those who are dead. It will only cause me to give something, and I will get nothing in return. Now, I'm sorry, but the dude is an idiot. Okay? Because Boaz himself, who... 
is pretty well to do. He has people who work for him. But he also says to Ruth, he says, look, this is amazing that you would come to me and ask me to redeem you instead of going to men who are younger or who were rich. So, so Boaz isn't Bill Gates. He's pretty well to do, but he's not the richest guy in town. But what Boaz realizes, I mean, again, if you examine the heart of Boaz, beyond saying this is the right thing to do, he realizes there is great joy to be had in this because Ruth is a worthy woman. She's somebody I could marry. I would love to have a family with her. That's, this is my dream come true. Everything that he saw in Ruth was something good, and yet this man who lives in the town, right? And when, people, when, when Naomi and Ruth came back, it wasn't just like a handful of people knew that. Like the whole town knew, oh, hey, Naomi came back. And when you see Boaz talking to his servant, he says, who's this working in the field? His servant said, oh, that's Ruth. Didn't you hear? The town's talking about Ruth. She's a Moabitess. She doesn't belong here. But she's left all that behind to serve Yahweh, our God, the true God. And she's also come with Naomi to care for her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law, not her mother. Her mother-in-law she could have left in the dust. Boaz says, I got to meet this girl. She sounds amazing. Before he ever lays eyes on her, she is a worthy woman. And so he blesses her. And now what he finds here is that this is a great opportunity for her kindness to him. But the dude doesn't see that at all. He doesn't care about the character of Ruth. He doesn't see what he's missing out on. And so in trying to preserve his inheritance and in trying to preserve his own family name, he gets listed in a book that survives throughout all of history as friend. Well, our English translation. But my translation, dude. That's it. The whole idea of inheritance, the whole idea of continuing on is preserving your name. This guy wanted to preserve his name. And just as Jesus said, those who seek to save their lives will what? Lose it. This is a tragic conversation. And yet, it's something that we realize that we also partake in, that we are guilty of the same thing. We lose sight of God's past faithfulness. That is what he's already done for us, what we see in his word and what we see in our lives. Maybe if you're not a Christian today, you might say, well, I don't know about the past faithfulness of God because I haven't known him for very long or I still don't know him today. Whatever that case may be, you could still look back and say, unless something happened, I would be in a different place than I am today. And if you really sat down and thought about it, you could probably make a list of evidences that the Lord has preserved you and maybe even brought you to this Sunday to hear that there is a Redeemer. But what we get wrong, we lose sight of his past faithfulness. We look for significance in our own story. And this is what dude wanted. Can you get that the application of the sermon is don't be a dude? right? Ultimately, that's what we're coming down to. We're recognizing that just like him, we are so short-sighted that we only see our perspective. And yeah, we, we live in a world where everybody says, open your eyes and see other people's perspectives. Well, guess what? The Bible tells us that none of us have the right perspective because we, like in the book of Judges, only do what is right in our own eyes. And we're hopeless. Our answer is not going to be found in some guru who climbed a tall mountain and talked to a bearded guy and found the answer to life. I don't know if this is a good reference, so please forgive me. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. 
Okay, all right, thank you. All right, now I feel, you don't know the weight just, okay. So uh, there's this part where they talk uh, the history in that, in that world, and, and there's this point where these, these folks wanted to go and find the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And they go up and they create the supercomputer. It's a creation of mankind. And they, they create the supercomputer that can solve any equation, can answer any question, and they go up to the computer and they say, and it's really big, so they look at it and they say, what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? And the computer is calculating, calculating, calculating. Come back later. Oh, wow, okay. Some hundred years or so, I think. A long time, right, passes, and they finally come back. Do you have an answer for us? The computer says, yes, there's much rejoicing. We figured out the answer to life, the universe, and everything. What is it? 42. What do you do with that? I mean, obviously, this is comical, but it really is an interesting commentary on what we can do to come up with meaning and purpose. The best we can do is basically 42. There's no way to interpret that. Our short-sightedness towards God's beautiful tapestry that he's weaving leaves us with our narrow view of this world and thinking only from our own perspective and only what we understand. And maybe we might look around and say, did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? None of us have got it though. The Lord wants to redeem us from that kind of identity. But unfortunately, we have to identify with the dude here for a moment. He's an unfortunate casualty of individualistic culture. He wants to know where the big picture is, but he wants the big picture to be his big picture. He says, my life only matters if my dreams come true. For many of us, many of our dreams have already set sail. What do we do when our dream dies? What do we do when we hit the point where we realize, I don't think that there's any room left for me to accomplish my dreams. I had this plan, and then something happened. I mean, boy, isn't COVID an example of that? How many plans, how many dreams have been shattered because of this past year? I had this plan, there were requirements, and I would get to that point, but something stalled me. You know, there's another parable that Jesus says that there was a man who had many barns, and he had a lot of grain, and he had a lot stored up, and he said, I'm going to tear down my barns, and I'm going to build one big one. And then when I do that, I can rest. That's my plan. Tear down the barns, put it all in one big one. And he finishes his work, and what happens? Does anybody know? He kicks the bucket. That's what happened, Ralph. He died. And Jesus tells it as a, as a, it's a comical story, of course, because the guy said, here's my great plan. I'm going to work it out, and then I'm going to do it. So, so we might be at a place where we say, boy, my plan didn't work out. And then you might look at somebody else and say, their plan worked out, but guess what? They still have to die someday. And Jesus' point is, who's... Who, who will own these things that you leave behind? Yeah, maybe somebody else will. Maybe they'll take advantage of it. But what good is that to you? If my end goal is making my dreams come true, anyone around me simply exists to contribute or disrupt that goal. And the fact is, is that if everybody's living that way, we don't have time to contribute to other people's goals, just our own. So we're going to be left to disrupt them. I say all of this to say that if we follow this track of individualism through to its conclusion and that everyone should be doing it according to the world's standards, we're all going to be lost. But Boaz 
is the humble redeemer. Humility is the answer to the individualistic culture that we live in. Boaz is a mirror and a testimony of God's kindness. He embraces his role in God's story by showing God's character through his actions. He says, I'm not going to be like a dude. I'm going to be like the Lord. And when in being like the Lord, I'm embracing kindness. I'm embracing goodness. I'm embracing self-sacrifice. Do you hear the whispers of his name? Did Christ need to come to save himself a people that he would be lost without otherwise? Say no. Absolutely not. The glorious truth about who we are in light of the gospel is that God does not need us, but he does want us. He wants us, though he doesn't need us. He doesn't say, hey, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus because I need you to come up here. I need some kind of fulfillment. No, he just wants us. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to know his great love. He wants an object upon which he can say, here's all my love. Here's all my grace. Here's all my goodness. Because unfortunately, the rest of the world is getting the opposite. The wages of sin is death. The wages of this man's unkindness is not just going to be that he'll be dissatisfied with his ultimate plan on earth, but he'll be dissatisfied for all of eternity. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And when we die, apart from the redemption that Christ has for us, we die and go to a place of eternal torment. We make decisions in a temporary realm that have everlasting consequences. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry. I'm going to say I don't like it either. I wish that wasn't the state of humanity. But it's God's plan. And I'm living on that side of the tapestry where I'm looking at the, the, the yarn going this way and that. And I'm like, Lord, I don't get it. I know you're great. But, but is eternity really the right punishment for temporary sins? And he shows us in his word that the reason that is is because even though our sins are temporary, they're done against a holy God. They're done against an eternal God. And they incur an eternal punishment because of that. Eternal separation from him. The opposite of redemption. God does not have a gray area for anyone. He only has perfect, great, and exceeding love and joy or wrath against the sin that we have all committed. Wrath that we all deserve. Justice that we have asked for. What God does with those who say, I don't want you, is he says, your will be done. Go ahead. Have what you can have apart from me. But there is nothing. Well, Boaz is the humble redeemer. He's the one who thinks of God's kindness rather than his own advancement. And yet in God's kindness and in, in acting out, he finds that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And this is how Christ fixes our problem. He satisfies righteousness for us. He steps into our story and answers the question we asked at the beginning. Is God going to be faithful? He steps into our story. He steps into our world. God, the Son, became human and died on a cross for us, doing what we could not do for ourselves so that we could get what we could never deserve. He exchanges our sin for his righteousness. And he rises again to offer it to you freely today. He doesn't do this for any lack that he has in himself. He does it for the joy that was set before him. He does it for the joy of obeying his father. He does it for the joy of having for himself a people to love and to pour out his great grace. 
You know, Ruth didn't belong in Israel. She could have wondered if the Lord was going to be faithful to her because she was in a place that she didn't belong. But she knew something about who God was. She knew that he was abounding in kindness. And so Ruth, the Moabitess, the one who, you know, even, this, even in recent weeks we read from Ezra in the reading plan, nine, chapter 9, verse 1, Moab is listed with the enemies of God. Then in Nehemiah, another book we've read recently, chapter 13, verse 1, Nehemiah tells all the people to separate from the Moabites and from others that don't belong with them. And yet Ruth has found in clinging to God a welcome acceptance from his kindness. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says that, For as in Adam all die, so also all in Christ shall be made alive. The Bible says that right now, if we are apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We need redemption. We need to be bought back away from that. And what we sang about this morning is that there is only the blood of Christ that can redeem us and make us alive. So there's our humble Redeemer. Let's look at the precious Redeemer. Elimelech's line does not end. We get to the end of this, and and I skipped a couple things in the end here, so forgive me, but look at this chapter later on today if you have time, or even if you don't have time. Boaz receives this wonderful blessing from the people. The people were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses, verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, which is another crazy story that you can look into in um, Genesis. But because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The Lord is the one who gives this life. And this is that precious Redeemer. Elimelech's line does not end. The precious Redeemer is both a comfort to Naomi emotionally and a gift of peace to her. Listen to what it says. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the woman said to Na- the women of the town said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. Do you see how when we acknowledge this redemption and we embrace the hope that he has for us, it results in blessing the Lord. What does it mean to bless? It means may the Lord be happy. When somebody says bless you, they say may you be happy. May you embrace happiness and fulfillment in him. And yet here we're talking about blessing the Lord. May the Lord be blessed and pleased in what he has been putting together, what he's been weaving together in this marvelous tapestry all along. We read the words from that hymn a couple weeks ago. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Indeed he does. And Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi would have marveled at this. Verse 16, they gave him a name. Obed means servant of God. He was clearly, I mean, all children are given from God, but they they point this out and they say, there is no way that this child would have come unless the Lord orchestrated all these things together. And we might look at Ruth's life and say, yeah, well, maybe the Lord's doing that in her life, but I don't think he's doing it in my life. You're wrong. Sorry, he is doing that in your life. Ruth is not a picture to say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if your life was like this? Ruth is a picture to say that this is what God is doing in the lives of all of his people. And even those who are not yet his people, there is a story available for them to find the fulfillment of their story in the purposes of God. So we see a precious redeemer. Why is he precious? Because babies are precious. And it was a baby born where? In Bethlehem. Obed, not Jesus. But obviously you see the connection, right? I think that was on purpose. Don't you? Boaz had a baby in Bethlehem named Obed. 
And how many hundreds of years later, we have thousands of years actually, we have Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer, not only of a family, but of all of humanity, born in a place called Bethlehem. This is a precious Redeemer because babies are precious, because babies are those that we look at and we say, you contribute nothing to the well-being of my household as far as goods and services go, but you are of immense precious value and I will lay down my life to protect you. There's a preciousness to a newborn baby. And yet what they say about this baby is that this baby is actually a redeemer. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And then look all the way down. We'll just skip it for the sake of time. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. He's not talking about Boaz as a redeemer again here. He's talking about Obed. This child already is a redeemer for the life of Naomi because when Naomi gets old, this child will also grow and this child will be caring for Naomi and for his mom, Ruth. It's going to be beautiful. And that's why they're singing about it. They're rejoicing in what the Lord has done. And they gave him a name, servant. Not because they were going to say, you're going to serve us and you're going to sit under our heel, but that this person would be an expression of the kindness of God in serving his family. Lastly, a victorious redeemer, verses 18 through 22. From the turmoil of Judges to the promise of Ruth, we see every man doing what is right in his own eyes, shifting over to people recognizing what is right in God's eyes. What happens when people do what is right in God's eyes? We have in the genealogy at the end of this, a picture of the hope that the cycle of Judges will end because a king is coming. The Judges never really did a very good job. They were a temporary uh, leadership in place before the king would come. Well, who came? Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. And you're probably thinking you're pretty smart because you, you, thought, you might have thought, I thought you were going to say David, but I knew you would say Saul. Good job. Saul was the first king. But when do we hear those famous words about David, that he was a man after God's own heart? We see it in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Saul was being a terrible king as he was. He was being a dude. And Saul was waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice so that they could go to war. Samuel was taking too long in Saul's eyes, so he decided to do what he was not supposed to do and offer the sacrifice. He wasn't a priest. He was a king. Kings do king things. Priests do priest things. Kings lead the battle. Priests do the sacrifice. And of course, what happens when Saul does the sacrifice? Who shows up right away? Samuel, the one who was supposed to do the sacrifice. And so Samuel says this to David, Now your kingdom, Saul, your kingdom, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. David is going to redeem the kingship of Israel. Why? Because he's a man after his own heart, because he has let his story get wrapped up in God's story. One illustration from David's life, just as it's coming to me now. Do you remember that one time he killed a giant? Why is it that David had to do that? Why is it there was all these big, strong soldiers who probably could fight better than David? Why is it none of them could do it? Because they were scared. They were terrified. Because their story was, if I fight Goliath, I will die. And that will be the end of my story. No, thank you. I'm not the one. Call on somebody else, said all the soldiers in the army. And Saul himself wouldn't rise up to do it. So what happened? David said, my story is not my own. I do not belong to myself, but belong to God. And so he 
will kill the giant for me. Right? And so David trusts in God while all the rest of us dudes were standing on the sidelines saying, I don't want it. Nope. Uh, my inheritance is at risk. David put everything on the line to trust the Lord. David would come and though imperfectly, he would do what is right in God's eyes. He would have a heart like God's, like Boaz did. A sign of his faithfulness to his people. And Christ, the one who would come from the line of David, brings us that same confidence. What do we need to do? We need to bless the Lord for his redemption. We need to find the significance of our story in the purposes of God. Are you desperately looking still for your story? Are you looking for that end, that rest perhaps, that thing that you're trying to get to? But the world around isn't really matching up with that plan. Maybe you need to recognize that God does not, he does give you a story. You do have a specific role to play, but the end is not your own end. The end is to be swept up in his story, to be a part of what he's doing, like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz were a part of what God was doing. And they were satisfied in that. Can you see that though we are not in our own plan, that though we do not find our own satisfaction in our own ways, that God is faithful to bring about his plan perfectly, even though we may not participate perfectly. The story began in sorrow, but he gave a way of starting over. In his grace, we find the means to work out what he has prepared beforehand for us. In our rest, he has provided peace and contentment patiently as we wait for him. In redemption, we find the fullness of his kindness in Christ. We find him to be precious. We find him to be humble. We find him to be abundantly victorious, just like David was over his enemies. Christ is victorious over sin and evil and Satan and death and the world. Friends, if you know Christ, this world needs to see that kind of humility. They need to see that you are precious to the Lord. They need to see the victory of Christ in your life. Will you testify to others about that? Will you show them how you've been wrapped up into God's story and no longer living for yourself but for him? Do you testify to the great Redeemer? We're going to sing a song now called There is a Redeemer. It's an old Keith Green tune. I love Keith Green. I wish he was still around making music. He's not. But the song goes, there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Boaz didn't have to be the Redeemer. The dude didn't want to be the Redeemer. Christ didn't have to come. He didn't owe us anything. But he came and fulfilled the law for us. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One the only one who could redeem, the only one who could bring us back and sweep us up into his story. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are kind. We pray that you'd help us to embrace that kindness, to display that kindness, and to grow in what our story looks like being swept up in your own. Help us as we consider new beginnings. Consider January is almost over right now, and Maybe our New Year's resolutions didn't work out the way they wanted to already. Maybe we've lost hope. Give us a fresh start this morning, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.